Hi guys, I'm Arpish Sharma and you're all listening to The Old Files. Imagine yourself on the top of the world where nobody can harm you, can touch you. You are protected on all fronts and suddenly that comfort ball bursts and you are there face to face with the worst. This is what happened to the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh whose worst nightmare came true when his 20-month-old baby was kidnapped on March 1st, 1932. Today, in this episode, we will talk about the kidnapping of Lindbergh baby. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born on February 4th, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. His father represented a 6th district of Minnesota in Congress. Charles's life took the first turn when his interest led him to get enrolled in a flying school in Lincoln, Nebraska. In 1926, he became airmail pilot flying the route from St. Louis, Missouri to Chicago. The fame came when he won the Ortiz Prize when Charles completed a non-stop flight between New York and Paris. After that, the life took another beautiful turn when he met Anne Morrow, daughter of Dwight Morrow, the US ambassador to Mexico. Both of them get acquainted and loved each other's company which led them to get married in May 1929 and in August of 1930 they had a son named Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr but the time they spent with their son was cut short as on March 1st 1932 Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr was reported missing by the nurse of the Lindbergh home the child's absence was discovered and reported to his parents who were at home at approximately 10 p.m. by the child's nurse. It is said that the nurse found the absence at 9 p.m. but didn't call the authorities till the parents were alerted at 10 p.m. The parents made the call to authorities without wasting any time and the charge of the investigation was then given to the New Jersey State Police. A search of the premises was immediately made and it was noted that the baby was taken from the nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home which was situated near Hopewell, New Jersey. Furthermore, a ransom note demanding $50,000 was found on the nursery window sill. The note was found by Anne Morrow, the mother of Charles Lindbergh Jr. and the wife of Charles Lindbergh. Also, during the search of the room from where the baby was taken, traces of mud were found on the floor. Footprints were also found under the nursery window, but they are impossible to measure. Now, the question was that how can someone come into the house and then took a baby from the second floor of the house well the answer was not hidden from the police as they found a ladder which was used to enter into the room through the window one of the sections was split broken where it joined the other indicating it's been broken during the ascent or descent but at the end there were no fingerprints or blood stains all in all there were no forensic evidence which can give a lead The next step by the police was extensive questioning and interrogations. Household and estate employees were questioned and also due to the ransom asked, widespread appeals were made to communicate with the kidnappers and also various underworld characters were dealt and disregarded. But after all the searching, the police found nothing useful. Then on March 6th, 1932, A second ransom note was received by Colonel Lindberg in which ransom demanded was increased from $50,000 to $70,000. After the second ransom note, a meeting was called in which police authorities and various government officials were admitted. 
The meeting was called by Colonel Henry Breckenridge, who was Colonel Lindbergh's attorney. In the meeting, various approaches and plans were discussed. Meanwhile, the Lindbergh family was devastated as it had been five days and there was not a single clue of the culprit or the baby's whereabouts. And, and not long after the second note, a third ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney on March 8, informing that an intermediary appointed by Lindbergh's would not be accepted and requesting a note in a newspaper. On the same day, Dr. John F. Condon, a retired school principal living in Bronx, published in the Bronx Home News an offer to act as go-between and to pay $1,000 additional in ransom, which was later approved by Colonel Lindbergh. The kidnapper also didn't took any time to send the other note as it came on the 9th in which the go-between was accepted. Firstly, the kidnapper disapproved the go-between, but when Dr. F. Condon said that he, he would pay $1,000 more for him to be a go-between, the kidnapper agreed. On March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon received $70,000 in cash as the ransom money from the Lindbergh family as he was acting a go-between. Dr. Condon started the negotiation using a codename Jeff C. As a result of the negotiations, on March 12th, around 8.30 p.m., Dr. Condon received the fifth ransom note delivered by Joseph Perron, a taxi driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. The note contained clues which pointed to another note that Dr. Condon found under a stone at a vacant stand, 100 feet from an outlying subway station. The sixth note found by Dr. Condon had instructions in it and upon following instructions, the doctor ended up meeting an unidentified man who called himself John. The meeting took place at Wood Lawn Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. There they discussed payment of the ransom money and also gave a baby's sleeping suit as a token of identity. The case was suddenly turned into a cat-mouse game in which the police and Dr. Condon was running round and round in the mercy of the kidnapper. On the next ransom note, the kidnapper goes to boast that he had planned the kidnapping for over a year. It was 29th March, 28 days since the baby was kidnapped, when Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nurse, found the infant's thumb guard worn at the time of the kidnapping, near the entrance of the estate, but no good came out from it. Maybe that was another proof of life. The ninth ransom note delivered more problems to the family as the kidnapper threatened to increase the ransom to $100,000, which is $1,760,000 in today's time. On April 1st, 1932, after one month of the kidnapping, Dr. Condon received 10th note with the instructions for the meeting was given and also it was said to get the money ready. On 2nd April, the kidnapper again sent a note which had information on the other note and upon finding it, Dr. Condon again met the unidentified man, John, and requested him to reduce the money to $50,000. After the 12th note, a good news for the Lindberghs came. In the 13th note, the kidnapper mentioned the place where the police will find the baby. Upon hearing the news, the police, family and Dr. F. Condon, all of them reached the place. In the note, the kidnapper had wrote that the baby will be found on a boat near Martha Vineyard. But the happiness was short-lived as when the rescue team arrived, there was nobody near the Martha Vineyard and again it left the family beliefs in pieces. From mid-April 
to May, the police searched everywhere and interrogated a lot of potential suspects, but alas, nothing and no one came forward. Then on May 12, 1932, the final blow to the Lindberghs was delivered as a truck driver's assistant by the name of William Allen accidentally found a partly buried body of a baby. The place of discovery was about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home. Upon the autopsy, it was cleared that the baby was indeed Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. The head of the 20-month-old baby was crushed, there was a hole in the skull and some of the body members were missing. The coroner's examination showed that child had been dead for about two months. That means that the kidnapper killed the child even before the first transaction of the ransom happened. The cause of death was a blow on the head. The family cremated the body at Trenton, New Jersey on May 13, 1932. The death of Colonel Lindbergh's son caused a wave of rage and emotion across the authorities as Lindbergh was famous and that was the reason this case made a large difference in the law. On May 13, 1932, the president directed that all government investigative agencies should and would place them at the disposal of New Jersey Police Department and that FBI will work as clearing house. On May 23, 1932, FBI in New York City informed banks in Greater New York that the Bureau was the coordinating agency for all governmental activity in the case. Also, a close watch on ransom money was requested. Three days later, on May 26, 1932, a reward of $25,000 was set for the info on the kidnapper. Then, on June 10, 1932, Violet Sharp, a waitress in the home of Lindbergh's mother, committed suicide before the authorities could re-question her. But a depth investigation on Violet showed that the suicide had nothing to do with the ongoing case. The case had become a high-profile case which made everyone interested and even President Franklin Roosevelt ordered a circular to banks requesting a close watch on ransom bills. In response to this, FBI distributed pamphlets with ransom bill numbers in it to all the banks. Because of this, the authorities made a break in the case. On May 2, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered two dollars $10 gold certificate and $20 gold certificates. All of them was the Lindbergh ransom notes. Immediately, the bills was examined and one was found bearing the name and address J.J. Faulkner, 537 West 149th Street and the examination of the ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in a virtually unanimous opinion that all the notes were written by the same person. After the discovery, the wheels of investigation rolled and was on full throttle. The FBI retained the services of an artist to prepare portrait of John from description furnished by Dr. Condon and Joseph Perron, the taxi cab driver. Furthermore, FBI also prepared a transcript of all the conversation that happened between Dr. Condon and John. Another interesting attempt to identify the kidnapper centered around the ladder used in crime. Police deduced that it is made by someone who is familiar with woodwork. Police didn't want to leave anything or any clue or stones unturned. So they thoroughly examined for fingerprints and had been exhibited to builders, carpenters and neighbors of the Lindbergs in vain. In 1933, an expert on wood was called in, Arthur Kohler, of the Forest Service United States Department of Agriculture. Kohler disassembled the ladder and painstakingly 
identified the types of wood used and examined tool marks. Kohler made field trips to the Lindbergh estate and to factories to trace some of the wood. His report played a critical role in the trial of the kidnapper. Then, for a period of seven months prior to August 20, 1934, no gold certificates were di discovered except for those they received earlier. But the luck of the kidnapper ran out as starting on August 20, 1934 and extending into September, a total of 16 gold certificates were discovered, most of them in the vicinity of Yorkville and Harlem. With these bills discovered, the police got another chance or should I say the long-awaited opportunity had finally arrived. As the bills was recovered, the police marked location of the recovered bills in a large map of the metropolitan area, thus making and indicating the movements of the individual or a group of individuals who might be passing the money. With the movements, the police contacted all the banks near the area of the marked points and as a result, the various neighborhood banks discovered new bills close to the point at which they were passed. And for the first time in the case, the investigator succeeded in finding the person passing the bill, whose description fits exactly that of John as described by Dr. Condon and taxi cab driver. And with the discovery, the calls from banks flooded in and one call dragged the police to a gasoline station at 127th. On September 15, 1934, an attendant had received a bill in payment for five gallons of gasoline from a man whose description fitted closely that of the description of John. The attendant then provided a license plate number and upon the investigation, the police found that license plate was issued to Bruno Richard Hopman, 1279 East 22nd Street, Bronx, New York. Then, after some days of surveillance, for the man, on September 18, 1934, police arrested a man whose description closely fitted with John. After some investigation and interrogation, the man was found to be Bruno Richard Hauptmann, a German carpenter who had been in the country for 11 years. Also, the police found a $20 gold ransom certificate on Bruno. More evidence on Bruno emerged as Joseph Perron. The cab driver positively identified Bruno. The following day, ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found stored in garage. Two more evidence fell on Bruno's head as Dr. Condon identified him as John and also witnesses identified his car, a Dodge sedan, which they saw prior to the day of kidnapping. Police also sent samples of his handwritings to DC, where a study was made and similarities were found, which positively identified him as the same man. Bruno Richard Hauptmann, 35 years old, was a native of Saxony, Germany. He also had a criminal record for robbery and had spent time in Port of New York City on July 13, 1923. Then, after another failed attempt, Bruno successfully entered U.S. in November of 1923. Then, on October 10, 1925, the mar he married Anna Schoffler, a New York City waitress. Until the kidnapping, Hauptmann worked as a carpenter, but after March 1st, he began trading in stock market and never worked again. Bruno was indicted in the Supreme Court, Bronx County, New York, on charges of extortion on September 26, 1934, and on October 8, 1934, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey. He was indicted for murder. 
The trial of Bruno began on January 3, 1935 at Flemington, New Jersey, which lasted 5 weeks. The case against him was based on circumstantial evidence like tool marks on ladder, Dr. Condon's phone number and address on Bruno, handwriting match. But on February 13, 1935, the jury returned a verdict. They found Bruno guilty of murder in first degree. The sentence was death. And on April 3, 1936 at 8:47 p.m., Bruno Richard Hauptmann was electrocuted. Although after many years, many minds believe that Hauptmann was innocent. In Crime of the Century, the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax, criminal defense attorney Gregory Elgren said that it was a prank gone wrong by Colonel Lindbergh. According to Gregory, Colonel tried to take the baby there through the window. and upon his descent by the ladder he must have slipped the baby resulting in the death of the junior the case made a huge impact on us law as bruno was never tried for kidnapping because stealing a child was not covered under the burglary laws and as a result the congress adopted lindbergh law which made kidnapping a federal crime when the abducted is taken across state lines hence the kidnapping impacted both the family and the us laws that's all i have on lindberg kidnapping so this kidnapping made a huge impact on us law before as before the kidnapping of lindberg kidnapping was not a federal crime when the abducted is taken across the borders only there was the burglary laws and stealing a baby or a person was not under the burglary law so after the kidnapping us adopted the law the lindberg law which said that kidnapping is a federal crime and hence nowadays many kidnappers have been indicted for the same so that's all i have for the kidnapping of lindberg baby and in the next episode when i come i'll be discussing a major and a famous case from india so stay tuned and enjoy the ride